before we had Jeff Bezos, who is part owner of Amazon and the richest person alive today. There was a guy named John D. Rockefeller. Some of you might be familiar with him. He was worth over $400 billion. That was his net worth, roughly speaking. And someone asked him, how much money is enough? He said, just a little more. Give you another one. The story is told of a, a pilot, and when he's flying a plane with his co-pilot, there seems to be this little place down by the stream of water where he's always fixated at. He's always, he's always looking at. And finally, one day, his co-pilot said, how come every time when we're flying this plane, you're always looking at that one spot down there by the water? He said, when I was a little boy, I used to be down there fishing, and every single time I saw a plane go over, I wish I was in the plane flying. Now that I'm in this plane, I wish I was down there fishing. <laughs> 2020 has been a hard year, so I'm going to give you one more. I'm going to give you one more. Now, I know some of you want to do this every sermon. I'm not going to do this every sermon. Know what you want, I'll give you what you need, but I think one more, it's kind of hard here, so I'm going to give you one more. And there's, there's a story of a king who was suffering from a sickness, he was really sick, uh, on his deathbed, so to speak. And the smartest and the brightest men around him said, you know, if you find a shirt of a person who's content, the shirt will cure you. He said, okay, so he got all this money and resources and people. So they, they looked through the whole world to try to find a content person, but they couldn't find one. So they kept looking and looking and looking, and finally they sent people to the edges of the earth, and they found a content person. But there was one problem. He didn't have a shirt on. <laughs> Uh, I think these jokes are funny. I mean, they're funny to me. Some of you thought they were funny too. I'm, I'm trying to make a point uh, about contentment because most people aren't content. Okay, can we just can we just name that and put that out there? It, it's Thanksgiving Eve time, and it's time to talk about thankfulness. But what I'm going to do is sort of take a slightly different angle at it and talk about contentment because contentment and thankfulness are related. People who are content are thankful. People who are thankful are content. They usually go together. So, so we're going to be doing that. And as opposed to picking just one passage and working through it verse by verse like we usually do, I'm going to pick a couple of passages and we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say briefly about content. It's, it's the perfect time of the year with Thanksgiving to reflect and dwell. And despite all of the issues in society and health concerns and anxieties and fears that many of us are having, in the Christian faith there are resources to help you, to bless you, even in the worst of times. That's, that's one of the beauties of the Christian faith, that, that these resources are available. Before I do that, I want to kind of backtrack to the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, 
So I'm going rough numbers. The, the life expectancy was like 40-something for a person. That was upper 70s for people in America. Uh, throughout the 21st century, there was unreal prosperity. I've been reading about this and studying about it starting at 1900 and going up. And some of you have, have lived through this where you know when you were a teenager or junior high, things, comfort levels were, were at a certain level. Now they're just unreal. Uh, Wayne Greer, in his book on Christian ethics, he says, over the last five centuries, and especially over the last 100 years, many nations, not just our nation, of the world have experienced an astounding increase in material prosperity that is unlike anything seen before in the history of the world. And this is sort of documented in a book called The Progress Paradox, how life gets better but people feel worse. The second non-Christian book, uh, I was reading part of it, and the author was talking about some sort of these similar things, particularly in America, where we have made tremendous, unprecedented, incredible improvements in areas like health and science and literature and arts. And yet, the sort of anxiety and depression rates are skyrocketing through the roof, and so are discontentment levels. A lot of these tremendous comforts that we love to enjoy haven't necessarily made people happier or more joyful. The author writes, he says this, The citizens of the United States and the European Union, almost all of whom live better than almost all of the men and women of history, entertain considerable discontent. Saying, even though, because of the pleasures and comforts we get to enjoy, that people from the 15th century, the 1st century, the 2nd century, and all of the centuries would have dreamed of having, for some reason, that hasn't made us happier or more thankful or content. Why is it? What are some of the reasons why one would be discontent? Well, one of them is, uh, you might say, cultural lies. The Bible talks about how the world is ruled by the evil one, the enemy. And cultural lies could be media or advertising. Lies that, that tell us, we see this all the time on commercial, on billboards, uh, that if you're not, if you're not skinnier or prettier, if you don't make more money, then you're never going to be anything. Discontent are sort of these high expectations placed on us from youth. You know, when, when you, people tell you when you're in, you know, teachers and, and ministry leaders and parents who pull kids aside to say humble things are a tremendous blessing. I remember my fourth grade PE teacher told me that was awesome, man, in response to the mild one. And I thought I did a terrible job. But he encouraged me. I mean, people who do these kind of things are encouraging. But, but there is sort of this high expectations placed on us in youth where... People say you're going to be a world changer, the captain of the faith, and master of your own soul, and you're going to change the world. Uh, and then we ended up with sort of ordinary careers, and we're ordinary Christians, and we're ordinary Christ followers, and we feel like we somehow missed our home. 
When in reality, when we look at scriptures, we were, we were never meant to be extraordinary in the first place. We were meant to be faithful to God, and that was it. Another reason you might think social media, some, some like social media, and you see the comparison, you see the highlight reel. So and so just got a baby, so and so just had a baby. Uh, it's, it, people always post the, the best parts of their life, and you see that they have more likes and followers and retweets than you, and it, it can start to make you feel like something's wrong with you, or you start to compare yourself to one another. There's so many reasons why we're discontent, but the main reason why we're discontent is because of our sinful nature, you might say. We are sinners because we are discontent, and we are discontent because we are sinners. James, James puts it this way, James chapter 1 verse 14, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desires. Sometimes when our desires go astray and we want things more than God, or we, we, we desire sinful things, or we want things that go outside of Scripture, or we want something that's good that's too bad, we turn a good thing like a spouse or kids or success into an ultimate thing. And if God doesn't give it to us the way we want it, we, we feel crushed, we feel disappointed, we feel like God, you're... You're holding out of it. In his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, a book from the 16th century, I've been reading it by Jeremiah Burroughs. He defines contentment like this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. To be content means you feel uh, sufficient. You, need, you feel adequate. You feel like in every situation you have what you need. You feel like you have more than enough. Appropriate sentiments would be words like happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction. All of this cannot come from your own ability, but through God's empowering grace. Nevertheless, it is still possible. Contentment is attainable. No matter how sort of discontent you feel as you walk in this evening, through a rough year, disappointment, hopes not fulfilled, anxieties about the future, Contentment is a skill and a virtue and an art that you can obtain. You have to believe that you can obtain. But how? How can you be content in a society that doesn't seem to have any? First passage is from an unknown author, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 through 6. This is what the, the writer says, we don't know who wrote it, but he says this. Person says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content. There's a, there's a word right there for tonight. Be content with what you have. For he has said, or God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. In other words, they say that they're a Christian and then people want to beat them up. Just for saying that they're a Christian. And this kind of stuff happens today all over the world. In many countries, actually in the Voice of the Martyrs month, this month in November, uh, from the persecuted or people uh, in other countries right now that cannot have a Thanksgiving e-service openly and publicly because of their Christian faith and the government is very hostile towards Christianity. And this is the audience that the author of Hebrews writes to. And, and he reminds them earlier, because they were being persecuted for their faith, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. In other words, the material possessions got stolen and ruined. Uh, since you knew that you yourselves had a better position and a fighting one. Talk about heaven and eternal life and thinking about that more than your present earthly comforts. So this is the church that was, people were getting beat up and their possessions were being stolen and ruined. And he's reminding them to be content. The audience in that position can feel very fearful, very anxious of, what's going to happen to me? Someone going to take my life now? Someone going to take my stuff now? And I'm in this country that is nothing like the American country in the 21st century. Where they have very few comforts. And they're trying to follow God and be faithful to God. And yet there's all this opposition. You can imagine the anxiety that they might be feeling. And so the author gives them a few instructions. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. The temptation to, to love money and store up money. And find security and money in the midst of danger would have been massive temptation. This speaks in line with the Apostle Paul, who in verse Timothy 6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Does it say money is evil? Money is a good thing that can be used for good pleasures and God's kingdom purposes. But the love of money is prohibited everywhere in Scripture. This aligns with Jesus' words, who says, you cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6.34 Pharisees were lovers of money. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5.10 He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. People who love money and crave more money and have a desire, unquenching desire to make more typically uh, end up self-absorbed and selfish and are willing to sort of run over the next guy to get more. And those who are followers of Christ who fall into this trap end up getting frustrated at God if He doesn't bless them in a certain way or they might bail on God if God doesn't give them a cushy line. The love of money tends to ruin the character and doesn't even satisfy the Bible says. God is where the satisfaction is. It's good to make money, it's good to make more money. John Wesley said, make as much money as you can and give away as much money as you can. It's, it's a good, some of us have good careers and, and give things to God to do this, it's a good thing, but, but loving it is prohibited in Scripture. And then it says, be, be content with what you have. I love that line there. Be content with what you have. 
the implication is that you don't need anything more than what you have right now for protection. And yet, so many people think the opposite. Just as soon as, ah, as soon as I get married, then I will have all my problems go away. Yet, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, those who get married will have more worldly troubles. So marriage tends to multiply issues, not solve issues. And yet many single Christians say, ah, oh, I just get off, oh, I just get married. Singleness and marriage is a gift, one will be from God, but spouse cannot completely. Or other areas of life as well. So be content with what you have right now, in this moment, in this day, with whatever you have, it is possible to be content. And this is, this is a command, but he, he follows the command of the promise. What's the promise? He says this. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we see a command, but often in Scripture, when there's commands, there's, there's promises that go with it, right? We need help. We can't do it our own strength. And the promise here is that God will never leave you, therefore be content. That's what he's saying. In the original language, there's five negatives used. So it's like the author is saying, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. He's, he's really trying to make a point to this audience. They, they can have their stuff plundered. They can have their property taken away. And he's reminding them, look, God is with you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. You can remember Joshua in the Old Testament when he was charged with the daunting task of leading the Israelites into the promised land after Moses passed away. God says to him, No man, Joshua 1.15, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It can be hard to believe this if you had a father or a mother bail or an ex bail on you or if you felt betrayed you, you might feel like I, I've, been, I've been let down so many times how in the world can I possibly trust you but the promise here in this passage for those who are in Christ is that regardless of everyone else in the past has let you down that God of the Bible will never let you down. He will always be there. And even when you sin against Him, He's still committed to you. Even in your darkest moment, when you're far farthest away from Him, if you are in Christ, He will pursue you back and bring you back into the fold. So even your sin is not big enough to separate you from the love of God. What a promise. So, so don't notice the author of Hebrews and say, hey, God's going to spare you from trouble. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry. If you're a Christian, everything's going to be easy. Life is going to be great all the time. You don't have to worry about physical assault. He doesn't say that whatsoever. God is with you. I will never leave you with a That's the promise. Then he says, the, the, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is a brag. This is a boast. It's almost like, come on, look, bring it. You're going to persecute me? God's on my side. 
God is with me. The Lord is my helper. You would, you would not say that someone is your helper if they had never previously helped you before. Unless you want to give credit to someone who doesn't deserve it. But it's saying, the, the Lord is my helper. I, I will not fear. Um, you know, a lot of us have been walking with God for many years. Some of you, some of you haven't. Uh, some of you have been walking with the Lord 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and so forth. And you might, you might find yourself now in a season of anxiety with COVID, with holiday plans tomorrow, being different, uh, being alone, someone, someone uh, going home to be with the Lord, death. Um, now, I said to you, have you ever seen God's hand in your life, God's faithfulness in your life? And all of you would say yes. So now, the, the issue with us is not that we haven't seen God's faithfulness, but that we forget that we have. We tend to forget the ways in God's blessing and provision and His leading in our lives. We, we get so fixated on the moments and our future anxieties and fears. We're so fixated on the future that we don't look back to remember, oh, boy, financially, God, God's provided for me a hundred thousand different times. God has blessed me. God has opened doors. God has been with me. God has spared me so many times. No, my life hasn't been easy. But I remember, I, I call to mind the song that says, God's hand has been there with me. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, remember that. Remember that the Lord is with you. That He is your helper in a time of need. So, so the, the promise is not protection from evil. The promise is God's presence. Thanksgiving is a perfect time to slow down and to be mindful and to reflect on the goodness of God in your life. You know, in America, busyness and workaholism is almost paraded and working hard is really, really good. There's some seasons of life where we just have to work seven hours a week. You, you have to. You just put your Boots on, you go, and you make it happen. That's not sustainable all year round. Right? So sometimes you need to stop and reflect and think, think about God's goodness. So maybe, maybe even making a list of things that He has done in your life to strengthen you and bless you. But regardless, you need to reflect on those times of remembering God's goodness and His perfection in our life. The author of Hebrews talks about contentment. And so does Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. He says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. There's another word again for that, content or contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So Paul writing to Timothy. Uh, and that day, just like in our day, there was a lot of false teachers. People were saying, if you become a Christian, you will be rich. And they were saying, growth, a sign that you're growing in godliness is financial gain. Right? So these people are heretics, they're damnable heirs. These are absolute enemies of the Christian faith. But they were, they were saying these kind of things. And, and Paul writes to correct the issues. He says, no, no, no. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not financial He's saying if godliness, becoming more like Christ, becoming more holy, that word holy means to be set apart. 
We did a whole sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, attributes of a Christian, growing in godliness, becoming more like Christ. That's the real name. Godliness with contentment is gain, Paul says. Not, not finances. Finances by no means should measure anything with respect to your standing with God or how you're doing spiritually. It's nothing, zero. But what matters is, am I growing in personal godliness? And am I growing in personal contentment? He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Hard to find better common sense advice in all of the Bible. And the reason why being so fixated on money and possessions in this life is a bad idea is because when you die, you can't take any of it with you. This echoes the words of Job in Job 1.21 when for God allowed so much tragedy in his life. He fell down and worshipped the Lord while he was down there. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Think about money and possessions. Not that it's bad, but that it is uncertain. They're feeding. They're not guaranteed, but God is a guarantee. Unshakable, unmovable, who cannot change. So our hope needs to be in God. And the next fact, the aftermath, God, and this one. Uh, birth and death provide a unique opportunity to sort of ask what really matters in life. Uh, there was a study done with many uh, people over the age of 95. And they asked them, hey, what, if you had to do your life all over again, what would you be? What, what would you be doing? Now, that's when you think about this now, you look back in life, high school years in college, and how you raise the kids, I wish you would have done that, I wish you would have done this, how are you looking back on things, are they sort of more contemplative? These people here over 95, the three things that came up, the top three were, uh, I would reflect more, I would risk more, and this third one that I want to focus on is, I would do more things that would live on after I am dead. I would do more things that would live on after I'm dead. It says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into man's heart. There's a sense in everyone uh, something wrong with the world. In a post Genesis 3 world, it says something wrong. I feel like I've made for something bigger. I feel like I'm supposed to be around forever. God has put eternity in man's heart. Exactly what Paul is saying, you brought nothing into the world, you cannot take anything out of the world, but for the Christian, for the person who follows Christ, you think about Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount, which says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and lust do not destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. So he's saying, and I'm playing off a Jim Elliott quote, saying, when you, when you take, take your money, time, energy, passions, interests, 
and you you give them to God's kingdom purposes, right? you, you steward your life for the cause of God, you, you are giving up what's not yours, under your possession, ultimately everything belongs to God, to get what you can never lose. I mean, there's not a single better economic trade-off than that. And this, this, is, this is what people are saying when they're dead. They're like, I wish I could do or contribute something that would live on. Not, not just a family business, but that would be a tremendously wonderful thing. Not just a ministry, or that would be a wonderful thing. But in the hope of the Christian faith, in the hope of various Bible verses, we see that we actually do have this opportunity. Through proper stewardship. Through living for God. And he promises that Jesus says, store for yourself treasure in heaven. This is the beauty and the promise that through our faithfulness and obedience, it actually matters. God sees and it will live on. This is, this is the litmus test for contentment. It's, it's this last verse here. It says, but if we had food and clothing, with these we will be content. So if you have food and clothing, food and clothing is not like saying a pizza and a t-shirt, not being literal. It, it's just a, a way, a metaphorical way of saying, if you have the basic necessities in life, then you should be content. So if, if you have the basic necessities, and there's really no room for discontent. There's every room for us to be content in God for what He has provided. And yet we fall short in many ways, all of us, including me in this area. So I want to give you a couple of ways of quick ways of throughout the holiday season and hopefully into 2021 where you can consider how can I grow in this skill, this virtue of contentment? How can I change? How, how can I Learn what it means to be a content person. I'll give you three quick ways. The first way is to practice thankfulness. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. Paul says this. He says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Be mindful of the presence of God in you. When you notice God blesses you with something, something good happens, thank Him right then and there on the spot. Audibly, you don't want to be awkward in front of people, in your mind, you know. He's on a mission, all knowing you, you can read your mind. Practice thanking God for everything that you see in your mind, both in your mind and your hearts. Be aware of his presence. See him. Maybe for some of us having a journal, writing things down in your smartphone or a piece of paper. Thankfulness is a really big deal to God. In Romans chapter 1, where Paul was talking about people who were displeasing God, he says one of the reasons is Romans 121, they did not honor God or give him thanks. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's a really big deal. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were going to the promised land, many of them were grumbling and complaining over and over and over again about, I wish we were in Egypt. I wish we had the conditions that we had back then, even though we were in slavery. God had enough of some of them. This grumbling, this complaining is, is, is a big deal in Scripture to God. There's every room for lament. 
There's room for crying when we're sad and when people die. There's room for doubts and questions. All of those things are totally acceptable. In the Psalms, we see people lamenting and crying all the time. That is, that is proper. That is good. That is healthy. But this sort of complaining to God and mumbling to God for our lives is different. So being thankful is a way to help practice gratitude. I was, it was a day I couldn't sleep one night for some reason. I don't know why I couldn't sleep. I woke up at a super late start to coming to church. And uh, I left about 10 minutes later than I normally would. And as soon as I got in my car, I saw that my neighbor's house was exactly the right time to start to catch on fire on the side of the house. And so I, I thought they were arguing Monday morning. Uh, these are the kind of neighbors that would do that. It just seemed like a lot of smoke was going everywhere. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're barking through the Monday morning. And so I got the car, and five seconds later, it, it just, it just, for anyone who knows about fire, so it, it just, it just grew. It wasn't, it wasn't catastrophic, but it was getting worse. And so, I mean, the timing was perfect because if I would have left a minute later, I would have never saw it. This gal that lives there works signs that she was sleeping, so I, Smoke was everywhere. So sure, my head, I brought a knock on the door and uh, I said, hey, you know, I don't know, came out with clothes and straighter and everything was fine. Everything was fine. Uh, so I don't know if it's ever life or not. I, I really don't know. I know it just seemed kind of serious and we, we got it out the way. We went back several months ago and uh, they have not come to me personally and said thank you. Now, they did say something small to my wife, but I was certainly not looking for praise. I'm not trying to be the hero. I'm not trying to get the credit. I'm not at all. But I just maybe just a little more. We walk around the neighborhood a lot. We see them all the time. I figured it would be just something like, thank you for coming. Thank you for doing that. It, it, it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. It's kind of frustrating. And for some of you, you know this. When you do something, you expect gratitude. And now I'm going to tell you this. When, when it comes to God and Him giving people undeserved blessing after undeserved blessing, He is by no means under obligation to give anybody in this room success or health or long life. And He, he, he commands that His people Thank you. Right here. It really seems to bother him when we live in the Old Testament when it's people. So let me, let me just encourage all of us to learn this discipline of thankfulness to God. Not just thankfulness, but number two, reorient your desires. It says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your hearts. It doesn't mean that if you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you what you want. But it does mean that if you delight yourself in the Lord, His desires will become your desires. Our desires are good, they shouldn't be ignored. Sometimes we want things too badly. We need to delight ourselves in the Lord. How do we do that? The last one is Bible reading and prayer. I, I hesitate to bring that because I know it can sound like another religious rule or I'm not trying to do that. But we talked about having a personal relationship with God. 
If you go a whole month and don't talk to someone, you don't listen to them, you're not going to really have a strong relationship with them. And then we, we have the Bible where God speaks to us and we have prayer and we speak to God. These are means of grace, ways to grow our faith. So if we neglect prayer, we neglect Bible reading, we shouldn't expect a strong relationship. It makes contentment more easily when we focus on spending time with God and being with Him. Charles Spurgeon shares a story of an old lady in a cottage. He says this, I have heard of some good old woman in a cottage who had nothing but a piece of bread and a little water. Lifting up her hands, she said as a blessing, What? All this in Christ too? When Jesus was in the garden of Luke tells us that he was sweating black drops of blood. His friends, in the moment where he needed help, betrayed him. On the cross, Jesus cries out, My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not only did he die, he rose from the dead. And if you are in Christ, he's the one who bled for you. And died for you. And has given you salvation. Openly, if we have Christ, we have all that we need for our personal protection. The hymn, the hymn says this it says, famous line says, Shepherd of love, contentment at last is mine. Deep in my heart, there's peace and a joy divine. You make thankfulness, delighting yourself in the Lord, Bible reading and prayer have it. We'll be able to say the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we just pray for everyone in this room. Pray that we would have a good Thanksgiving despite a many of us having to adjust our plans. Pray for a sense of your blessing and prayer. Uh, excuse me, and by prayer, let us pray for help, help us to be thankful, help us to see your hand, help us to be grateful. Lord, we need your help in this area. Hope to see you in the tent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.